You're listening to an Axe Church sermon. Axe Church Northwest is located in Vancouver, Washington, and we have services meeting each week at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. You can also join us online live at our 11 a.m. service each Sunday. If you'd like to know more about Axe Church Northwest, you can go to axechurchnw.org. Now enjoy the sermon. When my uh, younger brother, uh, Pastor Daniel, was young, just a little while ago, he had uh, one benefit of being the younger brother. And not a lot of benefits to being a younger brother, I guess, but there was one, and that was that if someone messed with him, like some person at school or whatever was to mess with him, he could always call on me because I was older. And while I may not have always been as kind as I should have been to my little brother Daniel, although I think I was, he disagrees, whatever. If he would have been nicer, I would have been nicer. Anyway, um, I wouldn't let anyone else mess around with him. Because at the end of the day, he was my little brother. We're family, and no one's going to mess with my family. My guess is most of you feel the same way about at least some of the people in your family. He was a, a freshman in high school. Some of you remember being a freshman in high school. Some of you aren't freshmen in high school yet. Some of you, maybe it's been long enough you don't remember being a freshman in high school based on what I'm seeing out here in the crowd. But the, when you're a freshman in high school compared to a senior in high school, that's pretty young. So when Daniel was a freshman in high school, I was a senior in high school. And so at school uh, or whatever, his, his classmates, people around him would have known not to mess around with him because he went to the same school as me and they knew his brother was a lot bigger than them. Still pretty big, although I was big in a different way than I was stronger. Good, good times. Anyway, uh, for some of us, maybe we didn't have an older brother, or we were looking to maybe a dad or an uncle or whoever it was, but we had someone who we knew would come to the rescue if we were threatened. Some of you may not have had anybody. And when you dealt with the bullies and the jerks and the enemies in life, you had no help at all. When we got older, we were less likely to deal with fistfights or wedgies or bullies, right? Hopefully. Some of you are like, no, it's still really bad at work. I, <laughs> just deal with that, okay? You got the wrong job. But you probably don't have as much of that. But people are still our enemies sometimes. Those who don't like us, those who don't like us because they don't like our faith in Christ, And, of course, we always have spiritual warfare. We face battles. We face enemies. And for all those fights, we have a father who has our back. We have a father who has our back. Those of us who follow Jesus serve the king of kings. We are children of our father in heaven, and we have his Holy Spirit and his power in our lives. Now, that may not be something that you think about or realize very often, but you should be thinking about it. You should, because it's a basic and awesome part of being a Christ follower. It's amazing. We've been working through the Psalms for a number of weeks now. We've studied the first three, and today we're about to begin working through the fourth Psalm. Uh, I say begin working through. We're not going to get through the whole thing, um, or I have no plans to get through the whole thing this morning. Uh, But these are Psalms. These are songs to God. Remember that as we study them, this particular Psalm says it was sung with stringed instruments, So you got to imagine someone like Hunter, back in the day, playing on something like a guitar, a harp or a lyre or whatever, probably not wearing skinny jeans, that came later, probably unbiblical, but we we have grace, we have grace for Hunter. But somebody's playing stringed instruments, and this is a song that's sung, and there's a certain emotional experience that we express when we sing. 
And, and so that sort of sets the Psalms apart from some other areas of Scripture where it's history or it's prophecy or those kinds of things, law and things like that. These are songs to be sung. So when we study the Psalms, we're declaring things about God and who he is, not just as, as just text on a page, but as something that we would sing and feel in our hearts, body, soul, spirit, just crying out to the Lord in a different way than some of the other scriptures. And so always as we study the Psalms, keep in your mind and heart the feeling, the emotion, the joy that we express as we study these words. Keep that in mind. We're going to read our first Uh, We're going to read the passage that we're going to study today. It's in Psalm 4. So if you have a Bible, great. If not, it'll be on the screen, or you can pull it up on your device or whatever. It says this, Psalm 4, starting verse 1. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Let's pray as we begin our study. Father, we just ask that you would help us to sing to you in our hearts these words declaring who you are and your glory and all that you've done for us. God, you are so glorious and wonderful. I pray that your Holy Spirit would soften our hearts to hear from you, that we would put aside everything that we would bring in here that would be against you and rather just surrender to you, God, to your Holy Spirit and to what you want to teach us, that we might go out of here loving you more than when we came in here, that every week might be like that, that we might stir our affections for you. God, I pray with all the people out there who are going through all kinds of things, all kinds of difficulties, all these kids who can't go to school, some of whom are in homes where that's really not a good thing. The people who are sick, people in hospitals, people struggling in their marriages, people struggling with depression, the wars and rumors of wars in this world. There's a lot of difficulty, Lord, and we pray for all of those. And we pray for everyone here and everyone listening today that you would draw us to yourself, that we might have faith, that we might walk by faith, And not by sight. Then we might trust you with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you and you will direct our paths, that we could be those people totally trusting in you. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Psalm 4 1, the first part. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. The singer here, King David, asks God to hear him when he calls, wants him to hear him when he calls. And he proclaims that God is the God of his righteousness. And what does that mean? David knows he is not righteous. He knows he's not righteous. He knows he's a sinner. If you want to get a feel for how broken and contrite his heart and spirit were after some of the horrific sins that David committed, you can read Psalm 51 and see what it looks like to confess and repent and be broken. He knew he was not righteous as he had no righteousness in himself, that if he had righteousness, it is from God, not from himself. He knows that. We are not holy. We are not righteous. God is. Any righteousness that we have is his. Listen to Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace. 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation or an atonement or a price that was paid by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It is not King David's righteousness that makes him righteous. But he does sing, O God of my righteousness. Because David does know that his righteousness is God's righteousness. Not his own, but God's righteousness. uh, Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. We are servants of the Lord, and our righteousness is from God, from him. It was paid for by the death and proven by the resurrection three days later of Jesus Christ. That's where we sit, and our response to that Our response to that is to be humble. I know that's not popular. Be humble. Be humble. Be amazed at the blessing of God to give us his righteousness when we had none in ourselves. We call out to God in humility and in amazement and in praise and ask him to hear us because Jesus is our God and King. And he has given us his righteousness. It's an amazing thing. we got to live in that. Next part of the verse. You have relieved me in my distress. We've been stressed. Distressed. Restressed. Stressed again. 2020 has been rough for a lot of us. We've all been through difficult times in the fallen world. I don't think there's anybody in this room who's like, nope. It's been all roses and sunshine. I seriously doubt that's been your experience. We've been distressed. You will be distressed again if you live more than a few more minutes. You may be distressed right now. Rest in Christ. Because whatever it may be, whether we're stressed trying to literally struggle and think about how we're going to survive, whether that's physically or emotionally or financially or in our marriage or in other relationships or in our jobs or whatever it is. Ah! We experience it. Distress. Whatever that distress is, whatever relief we need, God has given it to us. If you're sitting here or listening today, you have been distressed in your life, and you are and have been relieved of that distress. It has certainly happened. God is a reliever of our distress. I have been relieved of my distresses in so many ways. When my family lived in Tennessee some years back. I've been here for, what's today, the 11th? So I started preaching here almost exactly five years ago. I think it was the 16th of October of 2015. Back before that, my family, Tiffany and myself and Corey and Ethan, lived in Tennessee. And when we lived there, we faced what is still the worst couple hours of my life. Tiffany and I were on the worship team at True Life Church, which was the local expression of the body of Christ that we were called to there in Tennessee. And on Thursday nights, like, just like we do here, we had worship practice. And so... Tiffany and I were getting ready to head to worship practice. Uh, The kids had been playing. I think it was late summer. 
maybe early fall. I, I remember it was still light when we were headed to worship practice, but yet the nights were getting colder, so I'm guessing late summer, early fall, somewhere in there. And as families usually are who have small kids, we were very organized. Uh, no, we were running around because we probably just realized, hey, we got to be at worship practice in 10 minutes, and so, ah, where's the kids? Where's the dog? Where's the... Whatever, right? We didn't take the dog to worship practice, but something had to be done with them. Anyway, we're, we're running around, right, um, getting ready, finding our keys, rounding up the kids, all that good stuff, and we start calling for Ethan, my son. And he didn't answer. Now, these days, I know that when I call him, why he doesn't answer, because he has these big headphones, it's like Princess Leia-type thing on the side of his head. <laughs> Noise canceling, which means parent canceling. Got the music. He's doing that whole thing, right? So I can, Ethan, Ethan, doesn't answer, right? I'll scream for hours because I'm too lazy to go get him. No, I don't. <laughs> Eventually I'll go get him. But back then he didn't have those Princess Leia earmuff things. He's just a little kid. And so him not answering us was somewhat concerning. So we headed outside um, in the backyard. We had a decent-sized backyard in Tennessee. Property is much cheaper there than it is here, as you might be able to guess. Um, and we're, we're yelling for him outside, Ethan, Ethan, nothing for the backyard. We, we headed to the front yard and started yelling, no, no, Ethan. You have to understand something for those of us who are older, like myself, uh, my kids didn't grow up like we did. When we were young, we took off in the morning or whatever, in the summertime if we didn't have school or whatever, or after school when we came home, and we came back when the lights came on and it was time for dinner. You know, you just kind of did your thing. But that was not how it was for my kids. We grew up with 24-hour cable news cycle and hearing about every terrible thing that's ever happened to a kid, and so we were very protective, very protective. Our kids didn't leave the backyard without us knowing about it. And even if they were in the front yard, generally they wouldn't even be there unless we were with them. They weren't just going around, going to friends' houses and doing whatever. So you have to understand that when we're calling him and he's not on the property, something's wrong. Something's wrong. So we started to become frantic. Tiffany or I, I can't remember which one of us it was, realized that his bicycle was gone. And some of you may think, oh, well, he got on his bike and he took off riding. But here's the thing. Uh, That's not how it worked at our house. You didn't just get on your bike and go riding. And Ethan was actually a very obedient little sinner at the time. <laughs> he didn't do things like take off on his bike when he wasn't supposed to. It just didn't happen. Uh, he was, I think Ethan was probably 8, 9, 10, something like that. Like, I try not to remember this, this event, so I can't remember exactly what year it was, but that's about how old he was. And he just didn't do things like that. And so I actually trusted Ethan's obedience so much that the thought of him taking his bike and taking off somewhere was unthinkable to me. It wasn't one of the possibilities. There was a possibility that he was outside with his bike, like near our garage, and somebody said, hey, come over here, and then grabbed him and threw his bike in the back of a truck. That was much more likely to be true to me than that he took his bike and just took off somewhere. It's the only reasonable possibility I could imagine. So we called our friends and our family and asked them to start praying, and we went all over the neighborhood yelling and screaming Ethan's name. He did not answer. The more we yelled his name with no answer, the more distressed we became. The more we started to fear. Many people from the church started to show up at our house to help us look for him because we had called and asked for prayer. So a lot of people started showing up. The police came and started looking for Ethan. The start of many times that the police would be looking for him. Oh, no. 
I hope not. I hope not. It's not true. Police came and helped us, but no Ethan. We could not find him. It was, it was horrible. Tiffany and I thought it was extremely possible that our son had been kidnapped and was dead, or soon would be. Those were the thoughts that were going through our minds. I can't explain it to you if you've never experienced it. The terror of that moment. We were crying out to God in our hearts and praying and praying and yelling and screaming Ethan's name. It was beyond horrifying. I think it was probably an hour, hour and a half, two hours. I don't remember how long it was. It seemed like forever. And I'm walking around the street, kind of a big, the neighborhood's kind of big streets and big area. And we're kind of on the other side of where my house is. I'm walking. Some of our, my uh, brothers and sisters from the church are with me. We're screaming and yelling his name. And I got a phone call. The police had found Ethan a mile or two away outside of a store, and they were bringing him home. I don't, uh, it's hard to explain relief when it's that kind of relief. I fell on my knees on the ground and just wept uncontrollably. Just, there was so much built up, so much fear and anxiety and so on, that when I found out that my son, my little boy, was alive and he was coming home, I lost it. So much relief because there had been so much distress and God had relieved me. All the horrible thoughts that I had about what might be happening to him were wrong, were untrue. They weren't going to happen to my little boy, to my son, and he was coming home. God has relieved me of my distress more than I could ever imagine. There were many people crying out to God that day, and he heard them. He heard us. Now, the rest of the story is that Ethan had become bored with being at home in the house all the time and wanted an adventure. So he decided he would live on his own from now on. He was going to get on his bike and ride. That's what he was going to do. He told us what his plan was. He was just going to stay at random people's houses and just kind of travel the country, right? He was kind of, <laughs> it's kind of over the, I can only go in the backyard type thing. Just going to travel the country. He said he was going to tell the people in the houses about Jesus, which is nice. So there's like a missionary aspect to this. He had it all planned out. As any reasonable kid would do, he was very prepared. He went and got his backpack, box of Cheez-Its, Cheez-Its in the backpack, hit the bike, and I'm off for the rest of my life. Me and a backpack and some Cheez-Its. Just Ethan and some Cheez-Its. He still gets made fun of by the folks in Tennessee about the Cheez-Its. But anyway, that's what happened. It worked out. He's still here. We didn't let him out of our sight for quite a while, but he, he gets to, occasionally he's allowed to go in the front yard now. So he's almost 18. He gets to go where he wants. But that is actually not the most distress that God has ever relieved me from personally. That goes to another day, the day I found myself on the floor of my apartment, crying out to God. I was crying out to him because he had shown me my sin. He had shown me the truth of my wicked heart and the judgment that I deserved. I knew it. Nothing had ever, ever distressed me like seeing the truth about who I was and who I had become. And I cried out to him, and he heard me. And he relieved my distress and he saved me wonderfully in his glory, the chief of sinners, 
saved by Jesus Christ. That is relief, brothers and sisters. No relief will ever match that relief. And I will love him and serve him forever because he loved me and loves me so much. So we sing. We sing the Psalms in our hearts and to our God and our King as David did. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. There's so much meaning in that. You have relieved me in my distress. For any of you who have lived very long, he's done this for you. And you know that experience. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. We have to have the humility to realize that his mercy is all grace. If you were here last week or you listened online, Pastor Dave talked about grace, unmerited favor, that which you're given as a gift that's free that you do not deserve. All of his mercy is that way. He hears our prayers not because we deserve it, but because he is merciful. We can come boldly to the throne of God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, creator of the universe, but only by his mercy and grace. Not because we are entitled to his help. Sometimes young people seem like they think they're entitled to a lot of things. I'm not talking about this current generation. I don't know if they're like that. I do, but I'm not going to say anything because they get really mad. But when I was a kid, (laughs) when I was young, I felt entitled to an awful lot of things. Let me tell you something really clearly. None of us are entitled to God's mercy and grace. It is a free gift. It is a free gift to broken, wicked people. It's not an entitlement. He hears us and he relieves our distress because he loves us, because he is merciful, because he has grace for us, even though we don't deserve it. Hebrews 4.16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It doesn't sound like we get to come boldly because we deserve it, does it? No, we come boldly because he loves us and has given us grace. This is what our prayer should be like. We come to our God, the King of kings, in humble excitement. When we pray, we should be joyful. The King of kings listens to you and hears you and relieves you in your distress. What an amazing and awesome experience. How often are we making that part of our prayer life? God, I get to pray to you. Only by your mercy. Who am I that you should care about me? And yet you do. And you say, come boldly as a son or as a daughter and talk to me. And he has the mercy and grace to listen to us. Why aren't we praying more often? What an experience. But sometimes I don't. I forget all about it. And leave myself till... Things are going way down the line before I go, wait a second. I'm a child of God. I can come by mercy and grace boldly before the throne and ask him to relieve me from this distress. Why is that not the first thing I'm doing? What a joy. The most important prayer, the most important relief from distress we will ever receive is the joy that those of us who follow him have already received. We have his righteousness, not our own. Through grace, he hears our prayers by mercy and relieves us from our distress because in following him, he has relieved us from death and given us the gracious gift of life. 
because by following him, we have been relieved from judgment and given the gracious gift of adoption as daughters and sons. So smile in your heart and have joy because God hears us. What an amazing thing. Regardless of what the world or 2020 or whatever throws at us, we have his righteousness, his grace, his love. God hears us. He'll relieve us from our distress. He has mercy on us. Maybe we should be a little happier, a little more joyful in our lives. Next verse, Psalm 4-2, the beginning of it. How long, O sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? Maybe you're wondering if David is asking about his own glory or God's glory. If you studied Psalm 3 with us, you know there's only one glory to David, and that is God's glory. Psalm 3-3 that we studied some weeks back. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. Who? You. God's glory. David doesn't have his own glory. God's glory. God is glorious. He's our shield. He is glorious. He's the one who lifts up our heads. We actually can't turn God's actual glory into shame. We can do nothing to diminish the glory of God, who is glorious far above all things. That's not possible. His glory cannot be diminished. He is not saying, glorify me to his children, because if we didn't do it, oh my goodness, he wouldn't have any glory. That's not what he's saying. He's not concerned about that. We glorify him as a reasonable response to his glory, not because it's diminished if we don't do it. We can't turn God's glory into shame. We can do nothing to diminish the glory of God by one iota. C.S. Lewis writes this, A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. It's from the problem of pain. C.S. Lewis, no one can diminish God's glory one iota. It cannot be done. But we can choose not to glorify God with our lives. We can choose to live lives that do not glorify God. Listen, the world despises God. They despise God. They despise his laws. They refuse to obey him. They ridicule the God. They ridicule God, the Holy One of Israel, the King of kings, the creator and sustainer of the world. They ridicule him. They will not glorify him as they ought to, even though glorifying him is the only reasonable response to him. The only reasonable thing that we can do when we know who God is is to glorify him, but they refuse to do it. He is our glorious and all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God who has shown us perfect love. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still not glorifying him, while we were still rebelling against him, he died for us, became a man and died for us. That's love. And people know this. And they still despise God through their actions, which show their hearts, that they do not glorify him. Because they don't want to. This is a tough passage we're going to read right now. Romans 1, 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. 
Sometimes we wonder, well, how are people going to be held responsible because not everybody knows who God God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. What is invisible is clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They're without excuse. That means they know and they chose. Because although they knew God, knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So what happened? They push it away. They don't want God. They know him, but they push him away. So what does he do? Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. They traded in the truth of God so they could have a lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Serve themselves. They serve themselves. The creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burdened their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty for their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. They knew something, and they're literally trying to not keep it. Get this out of my brain. I don't want to be responsible for this. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They're whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. It's the world. That's the world. The wrath of God is coming because the world does not glorify God. The reasonable response to him, to his glory, is to glorify him. But instead, they seek to serve themselves, to push God out of their consciousness and exchange him for a lie. And they get into all manner of sin and unrighteousness. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Let me tell you something. Such were all of us. Such were all of us. But you were washed you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Such was me, every one of these things. My heart was as dark as anything you see in any of these lists. Such was me, and I was washed, I was sanctified, I was justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's good news. 
That's the gospel. We are doing evil in every way, and we can be washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God. That's the message. Okay, that's it. This is what we want for every one of you here, every one of you listening, everyone in Vancouver and Portland and the Northwest and the country and the world. What we want is for them to know Jesus. It's that there's some of them were this, all of them were this, and they can be washed clean. We're not here to say that you already are clean. For those who are not in Christ, we are here to say that you are a suppressor of the truth and unrighteousness. We're here to tell you that's exactly what you are. And the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against you. But the good news, the gospel, is that you can be saved. And like King David, a sinner, you can have God's righteousness. Like me, like Pastor David, a sinner, you can have God's righteousness. That's something. Later in 1 Corinthians, after it talks about being washed and sanctified and justified by the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God, it says this, 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Why? Because you were bought at a price. It cost something. That grace was not free. It was not cheap. It cost God something. It is free to you. But there was a price that was paid. Jesus had to pay the price for us so that we could have his righteousness. And because of that, we ought to glorify God in our body and in our spirit. We glorify God through our obedience. We glorify him through our obedience. Not only that, but the scripture tells us that when we are obedient, we cause other people to glorify God. Listen to this. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. What? They're going to glorify God because even though they revile you, they're going to see your good works and have nothing that they can say other than glory to God. What a witness. We glorify God in our words and in our actions, and we even glorify God in our suffering, as Jesus Christ did. He glorified himself. He glorified God in going to the cross. 1 Peter 4.16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. We're to glorify God even in our suffering. Are you going to suffer? Yes. You are going to suffer but you can glorify God in it. You can use that suffering to glorify God because all things work together for good for those who are the called according to his purpose, for those who love God, right? You can glorify God in your suffering. We have to live to glorify God, our Lord and King. Have to, because those who do not will experience his righteous wrath. Part of that righteousness is judgment, And if we will not glorify him, we'll be turned over, confused, believing lies, and experience his wrath. 
Next part of verse two says, how long will you love worthlessness? In a Pew Research survey of the United States, the question was asked, what provides you with a sense of meaning? So people started listing things that gave them a sense of meaning. 20% of people mentioned spirituality and faith, one in five. 20%. More people mentioned career and money. And close to the same number as people who mentioned spirituality and faith mentioned activities and hobbies. People mentioned family the most, which is not a bad thing. Career isn't a bad thing. Money by itself isn't a bad thing. Even activities and hobbies aren't a bad thing. But where do they stand next to faith in Christ? Nowhere. There is no comparison between God and everything else. He is the highest priority. He's the highest priority. They also asked people about specific things to give them meaning. So they gave them a list. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? In that part of the survey, 20% of the people listed their religious faith as giving them the most meaning in life. One in five. 40% said family was the most significant. But it gets a little stranger. When they give the option for whether something provides a great deal of meaning in life, the numbers were a little different. Several things scored higher than religious faith that gave people a great deal of meaning in life, including being outdoors, listening to music, reading, and caring for pets. In fact, caring for pets scored nine points higher on that measurement. Nine points higher, significant meaning in life, caring for pets versus your faith in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that these things are completely worthless, okay? Take care of your pets, whatever. But there's no comparison between that and God. There's no comparison between that and God. Nothing is more important than him. The world loves all kinds of things instead of God. And some of us love other things more than we show love to God. Some of us fall into this. Certainly I have. What does our time and our thoughts and our work and our money say about what we value, about who we glorify? It's not that hard. Look at your time. Look at what takes up most of your brain time. Look at what takes up most of your work time. Look at what takes up most of what comes out of your wallet. And you'll know what you value. And you'll know who you're glorifying. We chase after entertainment, sex, money, career, fame, comfort, and many other things. When we get our eyes off of what we need to have them on, which is Jesus. But the world chases after all of those things and does not care for God at all. The world loves worthlessness because they believe lies. And sometimes we act like we love the world. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we, we act like we want to be friends with the world. We get caught up in that. Listen to what the Bible warns us about. James 4.4. 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's very clear. You want to be a friend with the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. You know what enmity is, according to my Microsoft Word dictionary? It's the state or feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. You do not want to have enmity with God. You do not want to be his enemy. You lose. There's no winning that battle. I have enmity with the Oregon Ducks football team. 
as all of you from Washington should. I'm kidding. It's okay if you like the ducks. Just need to read the Bible more. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) I do not have enmity with God. I will not have enmity with God. Neither should you want to. Why would we want to be his enemies? Why would we want to be opposed to him? He's the one who gives us everything that we have. Literally, these people who make themselves enemies of God are literally getting every breath that they get from him. Everything, every good thing, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. They get nothing good from anywhere but God, and yet they want to be his enemies. They want to believe lies. That's why when we chase the worthlessness of the world rather than God, who is worthy of all honor and glory and praise, we find ourselves in a bad place. We must keep our priorities right. We must glorify God. Next, King David sings of these people and says, and seek falsehood, Selah. These people seek a lie. They seek a lie. Who goes after seeking a lie? We talk a lot about, like, we seek truth. Let's seek truth. These people are literally seeking a lie. That's what the world is doing. Why? They don't want the truth. They don't want the truth. The new belief, the new religion of the world is that nothing is true. Nothing is true. Except apparently the statement that nothing is true. Doesn't make a lot of sense, of course. They say we cannot know anything. And if nothing is true, then all opinions are equally valuable which is to say worthless because nothing is true. Nevertheless, they all hold the same value. So if we have an argument, I go, well, we can't really know anything, so your opinion is just as good as my opinion. What that means is I can continue to persist in my opinion rather than being confronted by truth because all of our opinions are just, hey, it's your truth. How many times have you seen that lately? I've got to speak my truth. No, you speak the truth or you're lying. That's it. There is the truth. That's it. But that's not the way the world wants to work. Your opinion is just as valuable as mine, just as valuable as hers, just as valuable as his. So we get left by the world with only one remaining value. That's the value that no one is allowed to judge anyone else's opinion. The problem is that that value also would just be an opinion that would be worth the same as the opinion that said the opposite. But they don't worry about that. But all this goes out the window as soon as they have an opinion that they think you should believe. Then their opinion isn't an opinion. It's a fact because they said so. And only a fool or an evil person would disagree with them, they say. We studied in Psalm 2 that they want to break the chains. They want to break the chains. They see God's love and his law, which shows us how to live Eventually had to walk in the spirit. They see all that as chains and handcuffs, fetters, holding them back. They want to break those chains. So they have to become confused and deceived as to what morality is so that they can justify themselves in breaking those chains. According to scripture we read earlier, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And according to this psalm, they seek falsehood. They seek a lie. They are seeking lies and falsehood and they are infecting the culture and even some in the church are caught up in it because it's easy to get caught up in. There's no mask that will protect you from this virus. The only thing that will is truth. 
knowing truth, seeking truth, reading truth. That's the only thing that will keep you. That is the only vaccine against the virus the world is putting out there and the one it has been putting out there forever for as long as Satan said, to, from the time he said to Eve, did God really say? It's all been seeking lies and falsehoods. That's who the world is. Thank God for the Holy Spirit who will lead us into all truth because Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Listen, John 16, 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do not be seduced by nonsense, philosophies of the world, no matter how much they seem to make sense. They only make sense because you've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness sometimes, and you've become confused. They are lies. They are lies by people who seek lies. And they seek to destroy you by serving themselves, the creature rather than the creator, who is to be blessed forever. Amen. We serve a God of truth, a Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. God's word is truth. Listen to what Jesus prays in John 17, 15 through 19. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. You want to know where you can always find truth? Right here in the scripture. God's word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. The world seeks falsehood. It seeks a lie so they can continue to do the things that it wants to do. I was the same way. I had to surrender to the lordship of Christ because Jesus is Lord and God's word is truth. And not do the things that I had formerly wanted to do and let him change my heart. But that's not what they want to do. They want to say, whatever I want to do, I should be able to do because I wouldn't want to do it unless it was something good. And they're lost. We who follow Jesus Christ and live according to his word, the word of God, seek truth, have found it, and follow truth. That's what we seek. That's what we follow. Period. But know, according to Psalm 4.3, this is the last verse, for today, but know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. The Lord has set us apart and sealed us. John 15, 18 through 20. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I choose you, chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. They didn't keep his, they won't keep yours. They persecuted him, they will persecute you. If they love you, you've got a problem. They hate the one we serve. If they love you, you've got a problem. If you're saying the things that tickle their ears, if what you say about truth and morality and obedience to Christ sounds just like what the world is saying, you've got a problem. Because when you speak the truth, they will hate you, as every one of us hated it before the Holy Spirit drew us. As every one of us hated it before we were saved.
and have learned to love it. David talks about the law. Mm, it's just like honey. It's just like, mm, I want more. I'm going to eat it up because it's so good. But prior to being saved, I didn't think any of that. I didn't hunger and thirst for righteousness. I hunger and thirsted for sin, for self-gratification. But he saved us. He saved us. We've been set apart. We've been made godly by his righteousness, not by our own, not of works, lest anyone would boast. We will not love worthlessness. We will not seek lies and falsehoods. We'll fight them. The world isn't angry with you because of you. The world is against God. If soldiers of the king are attacked, people attack soldiers of the king because they want to attack the king. Because soldiers act under the authority of the king and for the purpose of the king. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the work God has given us, the great commission of Jesus Christ to us, to his church, his body. We are his church. We're working for the king. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's on the wall out there, but I love reading it. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. If you're wondering what to do when you get up tomorrow, this is it. Jesus told you what to do. You've got your marching orders in everything that you do, in your work, in your life, in your marriage, at school, in your thoughts, in your study of the word. It's all this. You've been authorized, set apart, sealed to do this. It's what gets us up in the morning. It's the blessing that we have when we go to sleep at night. I am on a mission. Men and women who follow Christ, you are soldiers in the shield wall walking forward in a church to do God's mission. And it is a great mission because you're giving these people the same relief that you had when God saved you. And what a relief it is. Just thought of Alka-Seltzer. Oh, what a relief it is. Okay, let's get off of that. It really is a relief. Listen, when we follow Jesus Christ under his authority and for our God's purposes, enemies will attack. They will. But you, godly men and women, who have God's righteousness, his righteousness, are soldiers of the King of Kings. He will hear you when you call to him. Do you think that Jesus gave us an impossible great commission, an impossible mission? Does he do that? No, never. What he has purposed, he will always do. If you have been called, you have been equipped, and you will be successful because his name is glorious. Listen, if this is you, if you're struggling with this, listen to me. Stop feeling inadequate. Stop feeling like you don't know where you fit in. Stop feeling like you don't know what you should do. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You want to do the great commission? You want to follow Christ? You want to serve him? You want to serve truth? You want to glorify him? He's not going to leave you without knowing what to do. He will give you everything you need to be successful for him, through him, because of him, because you have his righteousness. Do not feel inadequate. Do not worry. You serve the king of kings. You're servants of the Lord. 
Listen to this, Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. None, none. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. You have a heritage. A heritage that says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Well, sounds like you don't have a lot to worry about. Ultimately, to those things that are eternal, nothing will prosper against you. God will always work all things together for good for those who love him, for those who are the called according to his purpose. Period. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, and there will be those you shall condemn. There is a time when this, is, this time is over. And you and I, who are in Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places, will experience the perfection where he takes his glory and glorifies your body and your resurrected. And that time will come when those who have spoken against you and judged you, they will be judged and they will be condemned. Do not worry about what's happening in this moment. Rather, pray for those who are judging you. Rather, beg with the Lord for their lives, that they might be made spiritually alive as you have been. Live your life for this commission to see people know Jesus. That's what we do. That's what we care about. That's who we are as his church. All praise and all glory be to God alone. Let's pray. Father, we glorify you. We glorify you, Lord. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. God, let us be the ones. Let us be the ones who for eternity are in joy celebrating what you have done through us. We want to be those people, Lord. Let us prioritize it right. Let us glorify you. Let us not get caught up in the world's philosophies and nonsense. Let us surrender our own desires that are broken and take on your desires, Lord, that you might change our hearts. Let us love you more. Stir your affections, our affections for you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Stir us up in love for one another and for you and, Lord, for these people who you have sent us to. You have sent us out. You said go. All the authority is yours. You've delegated us as your soldiers, as your shield wall to walk out and to see people saved. Baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Taught to obey all that you commanded because you are with us always, even to the end of the age, which is coming quickly, Lord, and come quickly, Lord Jesus. God, we can't do any of it ourselves. We have no righteousness in ourselves. We humbly come before you, recognizing that by your mercy and grace, we have your righteousness. Recognizing that by your mercy and grace, are we even alive? Can we even take our next breath? Recognizing that by your mercy and grace, are our families alive? Our children, our brothers, our sisters, whatever it may be. And recognizing that by your grace, we will be alive forever. Because believing on you, you have given everlasting life. And God, we pray that many would drink from that cup of redemption, of restoration. Lord, use us. Be with your people this week. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope the Lord blessed you through it. We'd like to invite you to join us on one of our Sunday morning services at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. 
Whether you would just like to find out some more info about Axe Church, or if you'd like to plug in and take some next steps in your faith, axechurchnw.org is a great place to start. You can also email us at info at axechurchnw.org. There's always more content coming, whether it's on YouTube or on our podcast channel. So be sure to subscribe to both of those to always get the newest content from Axe Church. Until next time, we hope you have a blessed week.